Ooh, I have missed being here. And not just here at Faith Bible uh, generally, but here, like here preaching specifically. Thanks. <laughs> Psalm 23 is where we're at today, if you couldn't tell. Psalm 23. There's uh, three reasons that we're in Psalm 23, not only today, but the next three weeks. Uh, One is because we are in between sermon series. If you've been here at Faith Bible for any number of years, you know that it is just my pattern and custom to finish a sermon series, and then to continue where I left off in Psalms. That gives me time, because the Psalms are simpler and more isolated. It gives me time to study ahead for whatever the next thing would be, in this case, Exodus. Exodus is 40 chapters. It takes a lot to get your hands around the entire thing. And so we find ourselves back in Psalms, right where we left off. We were at 22 a year and a half ago, and now we're at 23. So there's reason number one. Reason number two, um, you as a church encouraged my soul greatly in enabling my family and I to enjoy that extended time away. I realized that was a sacrifice for everybody else. Life just kept moving on, <laughs> and um, we were enjoying the rest By slowing down and spending some time in Psalm 23, truly, I just want to return the favor. Third, this is the most cited passage in all the Bible, in all of history. Because you will interact with it so much, I want to make sure you understand what it means. So three weeks, Psalm 23, we start today. Let me read it for us. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
What a calming text. Soothing, peaceful. It seems like it may be the the pill that we need to follow the prescription that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 6. We read it earlier, you heard it again. Jesus says four times in that passage, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. Another word for anxious that we use these days, stress. Do not stress. (laughs) Don't stress. What kind of prescription is that? Like, how do you even live without stress? In the last study that I saw, 295 million Americans lament of regular experience with stress. Statistically, that's the vast majority of this room. You want to know what makes that prescription even like more impossible? Forget 295 million Americans. What do you do with the Apostle Paul who said that he experienced stress over all the churches daily? I don't know about you, friends, but I'm not feeling like I've got much a chance if even the Apostle Paul can't do what Jesus said. But we do need to understand that there are different kinds of stress. Dr. Richard Swenson, in that hard-to-believe old book now, Margin, first published in 1998, he actually explains that uh, truly there's, there's three kinds of stress. Stress is not the tough times that we go through. It's how our body responds to them. And the way that he breaks it down is by basically pointing out that there's eustress, uh, E-U, stress which is the, the Greek word for good, good stress. There's distress, which is like the negative stress that you feel, and then there's hyperstress. It's when you get beyond the normal capacity and it begins to, to shut your, your body and your emotional well-being down. Eustress is something that we experience all the time, and it's actually very good for us. For any of you who put your body through the stress of a workout, that's eustress. It's intentional, it's good, it's proactive, or if you've ever experienced the stress of a deadline for school and then all of a sudden like you can like magically crank out the material that you need, that's you stress, it's good. Jesus isn't actually saying that that's sin or that's wrong, that's not what he's forbidding. Nor is he necessarily forbidding distress. There are times when the body is like straining to react against some abnormality faced in it, like an illness, for example. Uh, that could be distressing. It is something that is a challenge, and yet even Jesus himself would sweat great drops of blood before he would be crucified. Uh, his body was indeed distressed. It's not like he's not practicing what he preaches. The concern is, is hyperstress, and the way to define that is Well, you know it when you feel it. You know it when you feel it. 
So what is then the prescription? How then do we avoid the, the hyper-stress that Jesus seems to be uh, commanding or forbidding, excuse me, in, in Matthew chapter 6? Well, here's our pill. Here's the pill. It's Psalm 23. He even seems to be alluding to it in Matthew chapter 6. And though the, the text seems so familiar to so many, I do want to make it clear that we do have this tendency to see things over and over again and think we already understand them. But we may not. There's much you do already know about this text. It is a psalm of David. You know that David was a shepherd. You know that the metaphor would have resonated with him. It would have resonated with the people to whom he wrote. But there's a lot we don't know about this. When did he write it? Did he write it as a shepherd boy and hold on to it? Did he write it in the early days of his kingship? You know, what are the historical circumstances? Some of you love that kind of stuff and you want to know what was going down. But the evidence for what is happening in this text is woefully absent. You can't find anything. It's general. It's intentionally general. It's generic. It's vague. But that's a good thing. Because for whatever the historical circumstances were that prompted such a beautiful poem, they've been scrubbed neatly from the text so that we who are experiencing our own tendency toward hyper-stress can readily enter in. You may not know what's going on in David's heart at this particular time, but you know what's going on in your own heart. And so it just resonates. Every time we read it, it it resonates. And it's structured in a simple way that we'll follow over the few weeks. I would just point this out to your attention. Notice the word LORD in all caps at the very beginning. In verse 1, and then look at the very last verse. You'll see LORD in all caps at the very end, right after or before the word forever. It's an inclusio. If you want to know what Psalm 23 is about, it is not about shepherding. It is not about sheep. It is about the Lord. It is about the Lord. Particularly, the Lord as provider, protector, and host. That's the structure of the poem. Provider, protector, host. Today, we're going to focus on the Lord as provider in verses 1 through 3a. (laughs) The first part of verse 3. 1 through 3a. And this is the first movement of this beloved psalm. And we're focusing in on our, our shepherd, Lord's provision. So how does he provide? It's two ways. Relationally and restoratively. Relationally and restoratively. Look at verse 1 again to note how our shepherd, Lord, provides relationally. This is charged with relationship language i'll explain it but look at it again the lord is my shepherd i shall not want now it'd be easy to want to go to the provision at this point and to start start talking about how god provides but don't forget the first word of the psalm it's lord but it's not just any lord it's lord in all caps Anytime you see that in your Bible, it is conveying this special 
Hebrew name of God, Lord in all caps, is different than capital L, small o-r-d. When you see it in all capital letters, it is uh, the, the letters that we would put in English, um, Y, um, W, H. Oh my goodness, <laughs> he didn't help me out. Y-H-W-H, thank you. Yahweh. Or in the older translations, Jehovah. When you see that name, you've got to wonder, like, what's so important about that? How is the name of the Lord used? Well, it's always used in a special way. Anytime you see it, it is emphasizing God's close relationship with his covenant people. Now, we don't use the word covenant that often. But like God entered into a special like relational contract, if I can use it that way, like your marriage covenant. He entered into a special relationship with his people. And this is the name that he signs on the contract. All caps Lord, Yahweh. Like this is what, this is the name that he uses, uses to convey that he has entered into special relationship with his people. We first see this word... Now, I mean, this name given to the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Do you remember that interchange where basically Moses is about to have to present God's case to Pharaoh to let the people go? And he says, look, nobody's going to listen to me. How is this going to work out? And he says, first tell the children of Israel my name. They're going to ask you who's sending you, and you tell them that Yahweh sent you. It conveys this, this closeness. And then, by the way, you tell them, you tell Pharaoh that Yahweh has sent you. There's a shift when God gives us his name. See, there's a title, like God, and then there's the name, Yahweh. Uh, The brother who just read up here earlier, for those of you who do not know him, he is a distinguished medical doctor. You could call him doctor, but no one here calls him doctor. They call him Josh. Doctor is the title, Josh is the name. Doctor implies something merely professional, the name implies something personal. In similar ways, God also often tells us who he is, but sometimes he gives his name to let us know who he is to us. So the name, Yahweh, sometimes translated I am. Is, is the shepherd. This is the one who is going to be caring for us. So that is, is, is what the name is. But the, the better question is, how, I mean, what does it mean? What, what, why does God use that name? Why does he, say, why does his, why is his name I am? Or as it says in Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. Or I am because I am. It comes from uh, the Hebrew state of being verb. Like, you remember in English, you had state of being verbs, am, is, are, was, were, be, being, been. Like, they just convey existence. This is the Hebrew version of that. <laughs> so, so God's name is like the verb for existence. And it conveys something very special that is extremely relevant to this particular text. Basically, it's saying that God is the self-existent one. He exists because he exists. He lives because he lives. 
Now we're going to go into the deep end of the swimming pool for a second. I encourage you to hold your nose. But you need this. In revealing himself as I am, we learn that his existence is from himself and for himself. And there is nothing about him that is in any way derived from anyone else. I realize this is a hard concept to follow, so thankfully, in Exodus chapter 3, where God discloses the name, he gives us an illustration of it. Don't you love illustrations? If you look in Exodus 3, we read or noticed those verses like 14 through 17. Do you remember the visual, the sign that Moses saw indicating that God was in that place revealing himself to him? It was a fire. It was a fiery bush. But you look carefully at the text. It was a fiery bush, the text says, that was not consumed. That's odd. All the fires that I ever make have to have kindling, wood, oxygen, more wood, and more wood. Without the wood, they die. Unless the fire is consuming something, unless it is deriving its existence from a fuel source, it ceases to be. And yet this fire needs no fuel source. It's just there. Like... The fire is fueled by the fire. (laughs) That's Yahweh. That's how he reveals himself. The I am. The one who exists because he exists. He's not derived from anything. He doesn't need anything. Like he has all he needs in and of himself. And this is a big deal. A big deal in a text that is going to be talking about one who will infinitely supply the needs of his people. If you're a needy sheep, you're going to need a needless shepherd. If you are a needy sheep, you are going to need a needless shepherd. And so it is Yahweh, the self-existent one, who is our shepherd. He needs nothing. The Westminster Confession says it beautifully. The Lord has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in unto himself all sufficient, not standing in any need of any creatures he has made. Because he needs nothing, he runs out of nothing. Contrast this with us, friends. Contrast it with us. Like we, we need stuff. God can say, I am that I am, but what do we say? Uh, I am because my parents made me. (laughs) I am because I breathe oxygen. I am because my brain is functioning. I am because my heart is beating. Like, you you can blame it on something. Um, Some have tried to get really creative with this. Maybe you remember... uh, that uh, French philosopher, René Descartes, who said, I think, therefore, I am. I think, therefore, I am. But think about that for a moment. Even to think is to need a brain, is to have cognition. Existence always hinges upon something if you are a human being. 
You're, you're needy by definition. You have limits. You've got roots. Like you have to breathe. You have to feed. You have to drink. And yet God never needs anything. He, he is the eternal flame that burns in and of himself. Yet for us, we have needs. And Tozer said it this way, need is a creature word. It's a creature word. It's not a creator word. It can't be said of a creator. God has a voluntary relationship to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relation to anything outside himself. He is self-sufficient. He's got all he needs. And guess what? Here's the beautiful thing. This one who is existent in and of himself wants to enable the existence of all of those entrusted to his care. The one who lives in and of himself, who needs nothing, wants to give life to all those he leads. He is this inexhaustible fountain of life. We sang about it in the first song today. The fount of every blessing wants to bless and he never runs dry. He is a shepherd who who does not run out of that which we need. So note his, his relationship to us, not just who this is, the identity of the shepherd, but note the relationship and, and notice how David says, the Lord Yahweh is my shepherd. Shepherd is a beautiful metaphor, albeit a rather unfamiliar one to most of us. Uh, just quick survey of the room. Uh, how many of you have ever been a shepherd of literal sheep okay all right let's make it a little easier how many of you know someone who has been a literal shepherd of sheep a two three four six people awesome uh, statistically, that's not boding well for many. I mean, like, most of us have never had any real interaction with a shepherd before. Like, we, we, we know kind of what to think because of what we've read in the Bible, but we can't do what I would call, like, it's a fancy name, the experiential word association game. I know, I know. But let's play it for a second. It sounds boring. It's kind of fun. I'm going to say a word, and then I want you to think of three things right after it. It shouldn't take you any time at all. Now, don't say them out loud. That would just be chaotic, just mental notes. (laughs) Baker. Uh, My words for Baker were, mmm. (laughs) Confections. And treats. I have experience with bakers. I, I, I could rattle off a bunch of words about bakers. This is something like in my realm. It's in my wheelhouse. Uh, here's another one. You ready? Policemen. I don't know what you came up with, but I'm just thinking authority, speeding ticket, and law. It's experiential. I know those things very well. All right, here's another. Doctor. Healing. Expensive. 
intelligent. Shepherd, you don't have any experience. Well, six of you could borrow from the experience of a friend. I'm only bringing up our unfamiliarity with the, like the way shepherds normally operate because it's, it serves as a fitting contrast to the ordinary Israelite who would have known this, and this was just their world. Like, if, if I would have played the word association game with them, they would have been able to rattle off all kinds of things about a shepherd, just like you could of, of a baker or a policeman. This, is just, this was part of their, their ordinary life. If, if they would have played the game, if they would have played the word association game, this is how it probably would have gone down for them. Here's the words that they would have used. And this will help set the tone, I think, for the remainder of our study. You say shepherd to an ancient Near Eastern Israelite, and three things come to mind. The first word would probably be provision. I mean, a shepherd was a provider, like straight up. He saw that sheep were fed and watered. It's, a, it's an interesting analogy, friends, but like most of us think, you know, of... Um, of feeding, you know, large groups of animals by like having a bunch of feed or ordering some hay, you know, or whatever. Like they did not have that option. There was not a rural king down the street. Like they had to find their food. And I know some of you are thinking, well, it's kind of easy. They just keep them on like the back 40 and, you know, they can just all stay in, on the person's property. Well, A, most people don't own that much property. And B, if they would have kept them in the same place, they would have ran out of all the grass because they would have ate it clean. So you've got these hundreds of sheep and this, this guy that somebody's got to be responsible for like roaming for like the good part of a year around Israel to find wherever the green grass would be at the time. So a shepherd was primarily one who led so as to provide. He, he kept sheep alive. He kept them healthy. So word association, provider. Uh, the next word probably would have come up was um, power. Now this one probably surprises you. Because my normal, I hate to say this, but like my earliest memory of a shepherd is a precious moments figurine. And frankly, the way that even preachers, my kind of people, portray shepherds, especially when they're trying to cook up a dramatic Christmas message, it's like the guys were absolute losers. Can you believe Jesus first announced, I mean, the angels first announced the good news to shepherds? Weren't they the scum of the earth? And I'm like, I, I don't know where you got that. This was a respectable profession. <laughs> In fact, it, it wasn't one that, you know, you just did if you didn't have anything better to do. It was actually something that was characterized by, by great might and strength. Do you remember when David tries to explain to Saul that he could take on Goliath? What's his resume? What's his CV? He said, I've been a shepherd. I fight lions and tigers and bears. It's a powerful thing. I mean, (laughs) he's presenting himself as this ruthless killer. I mean, even in the ancient Middle East, the term shepherd was applied to kings, such as Hammurabi, Ashurbanipal, We're talking about some of the most notorious, powerful emperors of 
the first millennia and second millennia, shepherds they called themselves. It's an image for authority and power. One said it this way, it is not a cozy image, but it does suggest the capacity to take the flock's side against its attackers. So word association for shepherd, provision, power, and then one more, presence, not presents like Christmas, presence like with them. I would say that um, the first readers, even though they were familiar with the metaphor, would have been a little surprised by this, especially as they're just reading through their songbook. Because as you read through the first 22 Psalms, there's nothing this intimate yet in the Psalter. All the ways in which the, the psalmist have led the people of God to praise him so far have been through um, verbs and nouns that, as one author put it, have rather a, a homeland security ring to it. I mean, think about the most famous metaphors up to this point. They're, they're, not, very, um, they're not very personal. They don't seem very present, like um, rock and high tower and fortress and shield. I, or even think of the names. Lord, not capital all the way through, but capital L. Lord, King, Master. Uh, you hear in every one of those things uh, uh, much about power, but you, you don't feel presence in that. You, you hear a lot about rule, but you don't feel much relationship in any of that. And so, like, what we, we've got to grasp is that they actually would have grasped that this is a highly intimate metaphor. I mean, the shepherd was always with the sheep. Like, he didn't just give them directions and say, follow this path for the year and come back to me later. He had to be with them every step of the way. He lived with them. He slept with them. Morning, rise, evening, noon, night, 365, like he is there. That's what a shepherd is. He's present. He's close. He's near. And I love the way that Martin Luther comments on this in his commentary on the Psalms. He said, the other names, talking about the other names in the book of Psalms up to this point, sound somewhat too gloriously. They sound too majestically. And they bring, as it were, in awe and fear with them when we hear them uttered. This is the case when Scripture calls God our, our Lord, our King, our Creator. This, however, is not the case with the sweet word, shepherd. It brings to the godly when they read it or hear it, as it were, a confidence, a consolation, or security like the word Father. You see the relationship in this. You've got it from three vantage points so far. So far, we have said that this is about God's relationship with us on the basis of the covenant name. This is the special name that he uses to convey that he's in relationship with the people. The second reason why we said relationship is being portrayed here is because it is a shepherd, and shepherds were inescapably present with their sheep. But then the psalmist takes it one step further because he doesn't just say that the Lord is the shepherd or the Lord is a shepherd or the Lord even is our shepherd. He says the Lord is my shepherd. 
Some of you aren't shocked by that, rightfully so. As a modern American-ish, I realize all of you aren't from the United States. I don't even know what word to use anymore. Western individualists. We are so used to thinking about our relationship with Jesus, like in personal terms, like the old George Jones song, Me and Jesus Got Our Own Thing Going. Or even the old hymn, He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me I'm His own. Like we've got this, we've got the personal part down, but I want you to understand something. The, the original people reading this didn't think that way. They thought more in terms of, of corporate, they thought of the group. I was, um, I had a wonderful time uh, Friday night uh, celebrating uh, a birthday party via bowling. And um, actually, it was Josh's friend, um, Frank, <laughs> uh, was there at the party, which was interesting. He had a Christian family, uh, a Jewish guy, and a Muslim family all bowling together. Thank you, Josh, for coordinating that. That was so much fun. But what was interesting in the conversations with Frank, who has come from Afghanistan, like on the last plane out, fantastic story, is that he loves this country. Like he loves being here. Like he's so happy to be here. He was telling me about his family over there, just how uh, they're deprived and what it's like to have the Taliban ruling. I mean, it was just this mind-blowing cultural interchange for a moment. And, and as he comes over, I just want you to understand, like, somebody who's aspiring to citizenship in the United States, like, is, is happy. I mean, delighted beyond delighted. Some of you are used to it. But we should be happy, delighted to be in a place like this where we can say, I'm an American or I'm a citizen of the United States of America. That's a corporate thing. None of us are thinking, you know, this whole American thing is, is really worthless unless the president gives me his phone number. I want a personal relationship with the president of the United States. We don't even think that way. I mean, who would think that way? That's just nobody. You don't have a personal relationship with the president. You have a corporate relationship with the president. That's the way the ancient Near Eastern would, would have thought about their relationship with God. They're just thrilled to death to be one of his people. They're just happy to be in the flock. And then here, the inspired psalmist of God actually leads them to sing out loud, The Lord is my shepherd. This is relational. This is close. This is intimate. He doesn't just shepherd the group. He shepherds my soul, like individually. Man. We used to sing this hymn when I was growing up. Loved with everlasting love, drawn by grace that love to know. Spirit sent from Christ above, Thou dost witness, it is so. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence all divine in a love that cannot cease. I am his and he is mine. <laughs> How amazing to be able to say that. I, I am his 
and he is mine. Can you say that today? Can you say that, that Yahweh, the self-sufficient God, is your personal shepherd? Before you answer the question, don't fall into the trap of thinking that what I'm asking you is if you will one day enjoy his shepherding rule and care in eternity after you die. Because most people hear Psalm 23 in the context of a funeral, and they think that, oh, well, a shepherd is the one who takes care of the details after our death. The shepherd is the one who leads us to the uh, Elysian fields of heaven, like who, who gets us to that really good place. Oh, he does that. But the emphasis here is on him being your shepherd now. Is he the one who you look to for your provision, security, strength, and significance? Is he your ultimate? Is he your everything? Is he your lifeline? That's the question. The person who says the Lord is my shepherd doesn't just see him as the provider of the get to heaven one day bus, but the one who guides and provides daily here, now. It's not just a question meant to prick the conscience. I just want to be clear. That's why I ask those questions. But I want to put this positively as well. Think about that, that the Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean for us? Well, the psalmist makes it clear. He says it this way, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What does it look like to have the Lord as your shepherd? What does it look like to be ruled by him, to be owned by him? Well, the the basic logical connection poetically here is the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. There's no conjunction there, like therefore or insofar as or because of. They're just put right beside one another. And I think we get the flow. I say... LeBron James is my teammate in the two-on-two basketball tournament. I will not lose. You get the connection. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You get the connection. The connection is not hard for us. What's hard for us is actually the definition of the word want. The definition of the word want. That's a little more confusing. Because I don't know about uh, you, but um, to be fully transparent, I want a lot of stuff. What about you? Is the Lord your shepherd? But do you want anything? So if you want something, does that mean he's not your shepherd? We want world peace, more money, more time, better body, better relationships, more friends, less friends, better friends, better grades, a vacation, the traffic to not be so terrible. I mean, you want anything? You know what the confusion is here? I like I, this is this is funny to me. It's interesting. I think 
three of you might find this interesting as well. The only reason that it says want is because so many people memorize this verse in the King James Version of the Bible that the translators didn't want to mess up Psalm 23 and they thought that people would not buy their version if they used a different word. Did anybody memorize Psalm 23 in the King James? Yeah, I did. You know that every major translation, ESV, NASB, New King James, even the NIV still translate it, want. And it made sense. In Elizabethan English, want meant lack. One of the most famous phrase where, that, where that's used is um, that, that section in Daniel where that dream uh, takes place, meeny, meeny, tekel, fersen, and he has to translate it. And he says, basically, you've been judged and found wanting. You've been tried and found wanting. We, we still use it that way. You, you lack. You don't, me, you don't meet up to the standard. Like, the word actually means, in Hebrew, is, is pretty clear. Like, there's, there's nothing um, mind-blowing about it. Here, here's what it means. To, to not run out of something. To not be depleted. Other places where this is used, it's like uh, 1 Kings 17. Do you remember that story of the widow at Zarephath? And she is about to run out. She's about to run out of her resources, or the stuff in this jar And this is what God says to her. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty. There's the word, shall not be empty. It will not be depleted until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She gave her last little bit of flour to Elijah. And guess what? She just would never run out, never depleted. Let me give you one more example. Hang with me. We're going to bring it back to us. But the most climactic use of this outside of Psalm 23 is in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7, where God says this to his covenant people. The word Yahweh is used again here. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. You have not ran out. You were never completely depleted. So let's bring it back to Psalm 23. Because Yahweh is my shepherd, I will not lack anything I need. It's not that I'm never going to feel desire for anything. The point is, I will never not have that which I must have. That's comforting and correcting. But I think the comfort's obvious. Some of you are hearing that and you're like, yes. Thank you, Jesus. You do meet all my needs. We sing about it. Great is thy faithfulness. Remember that last part of the first verse? All that I've needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We know that he's met our greatest needs. He's met our eternal needs. He meets our temporal needs. In fact, the fact that most of us are trying to lose weight or clean out our garage indicates to me that we have more than we need. But 
This is also a correction. If, if it's true that Yahweh's shepherding would lead us to testify that we have all that we need, it may be that sometimes we think we don't have what we need because we're lying about it. One of Jewish rabbi, interestingly, put it this way. He said um, he was walking down the street and he saw a store window that read, if we don't have it, you're better off without it. Then he explains, the message of the psalm would seem to be that if you don't have something, no matter how much you crave it, you don't really need it. If you needed it, God would have provided you with it. Well done. Friends, this is a great correction for those of us who are immersed in a consumer culture that thrives, that exists on the basis of its ability to convince you that you need something so that you can buy it. That's what marketing is, friends. You ever watch one of those, I mean, like, if you ever have insomnia, I do sometimes, and uh, you get stuck watching those infomercials at 2 o'clock in the morning? You're like, man, I didn't know I needed that air fryer. (laughs) And if I order now, I can get two of them. (laughs) We do that kind of mess all the time. That's why your garage is so full. You've been convinced. I need it. We got to get it. And I'm a part of it too. All I'm trying to say is, friends, when you're experiencing the want (laughs) in the modern sense of the word, don't forget that you already have it provided or satisfied by him. And if you think that you actually still need it, he will give it at the appropriate time. It's a guarantee. For those who have Yahweh as their shepherd, they have everything that they need. Now, I understand something here that some in the room could be a little skeptical at this point. Most of you are not, but some could still be skeptical because it could sound like this. Oh, well, great. This, this sounds really exciting, Justin. If the Lord is my shepherd, I will have scarcity. Like, he's, like I don't know, Justin, in light of what you're saying here, if I want to live like the widow's basket of flower existence. Are you saying that God, when he's the shepherd, just gives you that by which you just barely scrape by? I mean, if you stopped it here, you would think that all the psalmist is saying is that uh, Yahweh provides sufficiently, like, or even with scarcity, but not satiety. I love that word, satiety, sated. Look it up. You should use it. It's so good. It means to be filled to the full. It's that feeling you'll have after that Super Bowl party tonight. When you eat all that stuff that you don't normally eat except for 
about all the other parties you go to. Actually, it's better than that. I feel disgusting after those things. Satiate is when you are actually like filled to the full with that which you truly desire. We're talking about a good meal, qualitative, something that keeps you going. Here's the deal. It leads us to our second point. Our shepherd, Lord, provides not only relationally, but restoratively. He provides so much that it gives us new life, restoratively. Look at it in the continued metaphor. Notice in verse 2, he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Now, these are interesting words because, like, they're forceful. He makes me lie down. Like, that's like the, the Hebrew word for deposits. Like, he places me down. He puts me down. It isn't just like he says, hey, here's the food. It's like, he lays me down in green pastures. That's so fascinating because, friends, um, not only does a shepherd have to find the food for the sheep, but listen to this. You thought it was a tough job already. He has to make them comfortable enough to eat. They're skittish. Sheep are skittish. They're afraid. They're scared. And guess what? If they are scared, they will not eat. If they feel the threat of a predator, they will avoid the grass provided them and stay close to the shepherd or some structure. If they sense a storm is approaching, they will stop eating and they will go to, again, the person of security or to some kind of structure. And because they're not goats, they can't just eat anything, they're picky. They only eat lush, fresh, green grass or stuff with legumes for protein. But the point is, like, they will not eat unless they are in a place with abundant grass and, let me take it a step further, access to water. No kidding. Look it up. Unless they feel that they can slake their thirst and satisfy their bellies, they just don't eat. And guess what? The shepherd fails if they don't eat and die. What does the text say? It says that this shepherd, he makes them lie down. He puts them in this place of comfort. This isn't like a grab-and-go fast food kind of a meal. He lies them down in green pastures. I love this. Notice, first of all, the quantitative pastures, plural. He doesn't just say he lies them down in a green pasture. There's abundant pastures. And then that word green, you're thinking like, oh, green. In, uh, in my Hebrew lexicon, this is the way it defines it. New, fresh grass. We're not just talking quantitative, we're talking qualitative. This isn't just barely eking by. Like, this is something that is actually like life-giving, soul-restoring, satisfying. It is quantitative, it is qualitative. And you see it again reflected in the next metaphor. It says, he leads me beside the still waters. A shepherd would, would actually block off water or find pools of water for them. And you're probably thinking like, oh, still waters. That means that the waters don't move. Well, friends, in the ancient Near East, you're not worried about like running rivers. <laughs> That's not the problem. It'd probably be better translated this way. 
He leads me beside the waters that bring about rest, the restful waters. A couple other um, would translate it this way, the, the restorative waters. My friends, this is not just a great meal. Um, great meals, the best meals, the finest meals. I don't know if you've experienced this. They tend to be like the really small meals. Valentine's Day is coming up. I assume that some of you guys are going to be splurging big time. Maybe some even go down to Fifth Avenue or Third Avenue. The nice restaurants have the tiniest portions. But then there's the opposite conundrum. You can find some places that have an abundance, but the quality goes down. No offense to anyone in the room, especially my children, but think of Golden Corral for a second. Or the local Chinese buffet. Oh, there's all kinds of food, but it's terrible. Do you see how this shepherd brings together the quality and the quantity? You know what this is like? They did not pay me to say this. Fogo de Chao. You ever been there? Ever heard of it? Brazilian steakhouse. Look up a Brazilian steakhouse and save about a couple hundred bucks before you go. Someone tried to recruit me for a job one time and took me to one, and it was the experience of a lifetime to have 17 different kinds of cuts of meat floating around at any time, and they just slice it off onto your plate, and it is all you can eat. As long as that card is turned green, they will keep bringing it. Qualitative meal after qualitative meal, you will be satisfied. You will be sated. That's Yahweh. This ain't Golden Corral. This isn't the fine dining experience where you have to go to the fast food place afterward. This is a rich, luxurious buffet. This is the experience of those who enjoy Yahweh as their shepherd. And what is the net result of all this? Where does it all lead? Notice what he says at at the beginning of verse 3. It's tied together poetically. He restores my soul. The nourishment doesn't just restore the body, it restores the soul. That word for soul could be translated life. It restores my life. It refreshes my life. Like the net result of one who is following Yahweh as shepherd is that they just, like they feel, they feel right on the inside. Like he, he gives them new life. See, we run down, we expend ourselves, we are constantly being depleted, yet He refreshes our energy, our supply. He restores us, He refreshes us. Dare I say, if I was going to take it very literally, He regenerates us. He gives us life. 
His sheep do not languish, but they live, and they live abundantly. What did Jesus say about his own shepherding as the fulfillment of this text? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. Life under his leadership is good. It's not just a necessity. It's not just about not going to hell or going to heaven. It is a luxury even now to be under his lordship. I say this, friends, uh, very sincerely. Here's just such a clear application. This is the good life, and it can only be found under the good shepherd. If you want to know what a person really believes or thinks, if you want to know what their heart is orienting them toward, ask them their definition of the good life. The good life portrayed here is not a certain kind of retirement setup or or living close to your grandkids, or climbing the corporate ladder, or having a lot of stuff, or making your name famous on the internet. The good life is living under the leadership of Yahweh as shepherd. It's as good as it gets. And I say this because some of you may be missing out on this. There's two groups that I'd be ultra concerned about. The one would be the religious folks in here. Because it would be easy to think that this good life comes from striving hard, doing your part, making a contribution, turning over a new leaf, trying a religious tradition or ritual, showing up to a church, trusting in good works or philanthropy. But what's fascinating about the way that the psalm begins is that Yahweh is the initiator. There's no command given to the sheep in this text. Psalm 23 works from rest, not for it. You want the shepherding, care, and provision of Yahweh? He provides it, not you. It is his contribution that you receive. It is not something you work for. That good shepherd, Christ, who provides life abundantly, did it all. And the only thing you can do is to receive it in faith. The good life is received by faith, but may I also say that the good life will lead to a different life. Some of you are not the religious, legalistic types. Some could be among us as the rebellious, lawless types. And you're like, oh, I love the idea of a good shepherd. I love the idea of, of Yahweh come and meeting all of my needs. Oh, it's, it's good. It is good. But that good life is only promised to those who are actually under his lordship, leadership, and shepherding care. Everybody's being shepherded by somebody. Even if it's me, myself, and I. You live under the weight of your expectations and your own ambitions. You call the shots. Or maybe you live under the weight and expectations of someone or some entity outside of you. But my point is, everybody's got an ultimate. And unless that ultimate is the Lord Jesus, 
You will miss out on abundant life. These other things that you think will satisfy, whether they be sensual experiences or plays for power or prominence or stuff and things, they will not satisfy. Yahweh said it this way, and I think this is just so good for us to remember. He's like, why? Why do you forsake me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water? Some of you are looking for satisfaction and significance and fulfillment in somewhere and someone other than the Lord Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, not only will you not find it in this life, but you will then have to suffer His eternal wrath and all of eternity for your rebellion against Him as being the ultimate Lord of glory. You have rebelled. You have turned against His good shepherding. And He will not let that go. But here's the good news. The rebel, all he or she must do is lay down their arms, lay down your weapons, and rely. The good shepherd, shepherd's rebellious straying sheep. Remember that lovely, lovely story of Jesus. Ninety-nine sheep were all in the fold, and one left. And he risks life and limb to go out and get it and bring it back. That is this kind of shepherd. I don't care where you've drank or where you've tried to find significance. It is found in him and he will receive you by grace through faith alone. For those of us who are already in Christ, what does this look like? So Justin, come on, tell me. How am I... um, how am I going to avoid the hyper-stress through, uh, through this particular pill? What's the experience behind this? Well, according to the text, the way that it should work out is that the general flow of your life is that physically, spiritually, and emotionally, you would be completely satisfied. The general flow of your life. Hang with me, please. The general flow of your life. As we'll see in just a couple lines, there will be times when the shepherd will take you from one nourishing and satiating place to another, and that may require a trip through deep and dark valleys and threatening times. But the typical experience of the person under the shepherding care of Yahweh is satiety, not mere scarcity. You say, well, I... Thank you. That's a good reminder. You know, I, I need that. We do need that. We do need that. And people a lot older and smarter than I have have been reminding their congregations of this all the time. In fact, every year. Did you know? And sometimes I see the value of this. I just think we're all too independent to, to value it the same. Some of our Reformed brothers and sisters, you know what they do? Every Sunday in their church, they not only sing songs and pray prayers and hear a sermon and practice communion, they confess their faith together, and the way they do that is kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance. They'll say what was historically represented as these great truths. They're called catechisms. And there's one in particular that is said every first Sunday, at the beginning of every year, 
to recalm the soul, to help the person remember the shepherding care of their Lord. It is from the Heidelberg Catechism, and it goes like this. In the service, the pastor asks the congregation, what is your only comfort in life and death? And you know what the people answer back? It's, it's in their bulletins. It says this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then the pastor asks this follow-up question. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? I love the distinction between the two. The first one is, what is your hope? And then the second question is this, how do you know that? How, do you, how are you going to remember that? How are you going to experience that? And this is how everybody's supposed to answer. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Let me summarize it for you. Here it is. If you're struggling to remember this and you find yourself drifting into hyper distress on a regular basis. Ready? Guilt. Grace. Gratitude. Guilt. You are guilty, and whatever negative experiences you are suffering are better than hell. (laughs) And Christ has already taken that hell for you, and his death on the cross, the guilt has been satisfied. There is secondly grace. You know God's grace. You may not have as much as the next guy or gal, but you have the grace of God. He has met your eternal needs. He will meet your temporal needs. And then gratitude. You know, sometimes the best thing is just to actually say thank you. You're like, I don't feel grateful. Express the gratitude anyway. <laughs> this is how you know. You say, Justin, I, this just seems all so ethereal. It just seems all so impractical. I, I was hoping for like a little more concrete peace in this. I conclude with the words of Matthew Henry who said, The greatest abundance is but a dry pasture to a wicked man who relishes only in that which pleases the senses. But to a godly man who tastes the goodness of God and all his enjoyments and by faith relishes that, though he has but little of the world, it is a green pasture. I know you think you need the temporal. But the true satisfaction comes from what God has already given you in his eternal son. Our shepherd, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray again now that you would satisfy the hearts of your people. Calm them. Not just in this moment, but in the weeks to come. As they experience the trials, the tribulations, the desires, the cravings. Lord, keep us aware of our guilt, your grace, 
And may that gratitude be reflected in a life of peace and calm under your lordship. And for those who do not yet know the shepherding care of Jesus, convict their hearts that they may know it even today. In Jesus' name, amen.